Good morning. This is no small thing that we are about to partake in. We are going to hear from God's word. And so let's start by praying together. Father, we give you all praise and honor and glory. As we consider the incarnation of your Son in this season, we pray that our familiarity with these narratives would not be a hindrance or an impediment for us. Please, Father, give us a childlike faith to see your word afresh, that we, your people, might truly be changed to love you more as a result of our time in your word this morning. Please be with me as I speak, that I would faithfully speak the words that you have for your people. And please be with those hearing. Uh, Grant to them hearts that are receptive to your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Here at First Baptist Church, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we find ourselves in an appropriate passage for this Christmas season, uh, the Annunciation to Mary of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you are probably familiar with this story, and maybe you've even heard a sermon or two uh, from this text And so even as I just prayed, right, that God would help us in this regard, we need to be on guard uh, lest we harden our hearts because of our familiarity with this text, right? God's Word is so rich, uh, it's so deep, uh, it's inexhaustible, and so let us never think that we don't need to hear from even the most familiar of texts. So look along as I read our passage, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
And the angel departed from her. Now, those of you who've been here in recent weeks, you'll remember that in the previous two sermons, we looked at the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. And hopefully you've already noticed that there's a whole bunch of parallels here between how Luke portrays the announcement of John's birth and the announcement of Jesus' birth. In both narratives, the angel Gabriel goes to one of the parents to deliver the message. In both narratives, there's an initial shock and a fear on the part of the recipient. And so in both narratives, Gabriel says, do not be afraid. In both narratives, there's a a humanly impossible, miraculous pregnancy that's announced. Uh, In both narratives, uh, in terms of the message itself, the name of the child is given by God. The greatness of the child is proclaimed. The role of God the Holy Spirit is emphasized. And then what the child is going to do in terms of the kingdom of God is laid out. In both narratives, the person receiving the message then asks a question. And in both narratives, Gabriel gives the person a sign of assurance. Hopefully you see that. Luke intentionally is paralleling these two accounts of John the Baptist and Jesus in this way. And we're going to see these two threads then intertwine in the next section when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And then, of course, later in the book, they're going to intertwine once again when John goes as the forerunner before Jesus, the Messiah. Let me say one more thing by means of introduction before we get to our text. Because I think this is a point of confusion for many Christians. When you think about the birth of Jesus, his early childhood, you typically think about the first two chapters of Luke and the first two chapters of Matthew. But the differences between Luke and Matthew, covering this same time period of Jesus' life, well, the differences have caused some Christians to stumble. Like, why does Matthew completely leave out all of this stuff about John the Baptist while Luke includes all this detail? And why does Luke tell us about the angel appearing to Mary, but Matthew tells us about the angel appearing to Joseph? Why does Luke tell us about the shepherds, uh, the angels? Matthew does not. Why does Matthew tell us about the wise men, the flight to Egypt? And Luke does not. Uh, Are these accounts contradicting one another? Or maybe Luke just wasn't thorough enough in his research. What's going on here? Well, I think the answer to all those questions is in the introduction of the book. Remember, never skip the introduction. Luke, in putting together his account, he has studied the pre-existing sources. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and that many probably includes the Gospel of Matthew. And so Luke gives special focus here to those events and to those details that Matthew doesn't include in his account, perhaps with Mary herself as one of his sources. And so it's kind of a a lose-lose when it comes to critics of the Bible, because when the Gospels cover the same stories, it's like, oh, well, they're just copying off each other. And when the Gospels cover different stories, it's like, well, those are incompatible. But as Christians believing that the Bible is true, believing that God has preserved his word for us, well, I think we have the most logical conclusion, 
which is that the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke are God's words, two true accounts that when put together, now they give us a fuller picture of the life of Christ. Now I want you to keep that in mind because later in the sermon, we're going to come back to a section of Matthew's account that's not in Luke's that I think is going to help us to understand our text from Luke a little better. Getting back to our text, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, we will remember that when we talked about John the Baptist's announcement uh, about his birth, we split it up into two sermons, right? We spent the first week talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then the second week talking about the promised son, John the Baptist. Well, I, I kind of like that. So we're going to do the same thing here with this passage. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about Mary. And then next Sunday, we're going to talk about the specific promises made about Jesus in this text. Nothing like a, a two-part sermon to keep the people coming back for more. Right? So we've got today part one. We're going to look at Mary. And if you're taking notes, I've got three points for you. Uh, point number one is Mary's background. Point number two is Mary's favor. And then point number three is Mary's submission. Her background, her favor, and her submission. So point number one, Mary's background. Look at verses 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And this virgin's name was Mary. In the sixth month, you say, well, in the sixth month of what? Well, look back to verse 24. Elizabeth kept herself hidden for the first five months of her pregnancy. Well, in the sixth month of her pregnancy, and now you see how our story here is going to set up Mary's later visit to Elizabeth. Well, the same angel Gabriel who earlier appeared to Zechariah is now appearing to Mary. Now, if you're Gabriel, that's pretty exciting. Remember how Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, that God's redemption of man is something so wonderful that it's something that angels long uh, to look into? Well, this is the second time in six months that Gabriel has been entrusted to deliver a message pertaining to that redemption. That's got to be pretty exciting for him. But consider the major difference in these two assignments. The first message The message that he brought to Zechariah, well, that happened at the central place of worship, right? In Jerusalem, in the temple, in the holy place. And it was delivered to Zechariah, the priest, as he's performing his once-in-a-lifetime chosen by lot, this is awesome responsibility of lighting the incense. Zechariah's inside, he's doing his thing. Faithful believers are gathered outside in the courtyard praying. Jerusalem, the temple, the priest inside the holy place, God's faithful remnant is gathered outside. That's where messages like this are supposed to be delivered, right? But now consider this second assignment. Not going to go to Jerusalem this time. Not going to go to Rome or Damascus or Carthage or uh, Alexandria or any of those influential cities. Look at verse 26. Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. If I told you that I was going to Los Angeles or Chicago 
all of you would know exactly what I mean, right? Because those are big, famous cities. But if I told you I was going to Sugar Hill, most of you don't know where that is. So I'd have to say, I'm going to a city in Georgia named Sugar Hill. Luke doesn't say Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth, probably because he assumes that many of his readers have never heard of Nazareth. No, it's a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Compare that to when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. Luke doesn't tell us where the temple was located, because all of his readers would have known exactly where the temple was, in Jerusalem. But Nazareth? I mean, we know about Nazareth, because of course... We know about Jesus. But back then, Nazareth was as insignificant as a town could be. Uh, It's never mentioned once in the Old Testament. We don't have a single extra-biblical source from that time period that mentions Nazareth. That's not surprising, because it was an obscure, small town. Uh, One guess is uh, that the population was about 500 people. I thought about this. I think there's 500 people in my apartment building. This is a small town. And even those who knew about Nazareth, let's just say that they didn't exactly think of it in the best light. You remember what Nathaniel said in John chapter 1? Philip first tells him about this Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's not just Nazareth that's being held in low regard. It's also the the whole wider region of Galilee. No prophet arises from Galilee. The the entire region uh, was viewed as unimportant, uh, backwards, and nondescript. I was going to illustrate by making fun of a flyover state here, but uh, it seems that every time I do that, I meet someone after the service, and they're like, oh, I'm actually from Indiana. It's like, okay, well, that's kind of awkward. So I'm going to pass this time, but, but you get the idea. Gabriel is sent to Nazareth. But it's not just the place that's obscure. It's also the person because Gabriel is sent to Mary. I made the point earlier in the chapter that Zechariah was kind of a nobody. But at least Zechariah was a priest. And on that particular day, Zechariah was the priest who was chosen to burn the incense at the temple. Right? So even if he's not a significant person, at least he's involved in a significant task Mary, she is about as insignificant in terms of her background as Bible characters get. Look at Luke 1. We are told nothing about her, nothing about her family, nothing about her background, at least not yet. Really, the only thing that we know from her, know from this text about her, is her marital status that she's a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. You say, what does that mean? Well, betrothal back then, uh, kind of like our engagement. And friends, let me tell you, if there is uh, one church in this land that knows about engagements, it's the First Baptist Church in the city of New York. Uh, But betrothal back then was also very different from uh, engagement, or what we think of as engagement, in the sense that it was much more formal, much more binding. And so when a a man and a woman would would get betrothed back then, there would be this formal ceremony. uh, Vows would be exchanged before witnesses. Uh, Importantly, the dowry would be paid uh, by the groom's family to the bride's family. 
But then everybody would go back home. The, the man would go back to his home. The woman would go back, would go back to her family's home. Uh, they would just kind of carry on as before. And then it's about a year later that they would actually get officially married. And so just to, to illustrate here, just for the purposes of kind of understanding it in our context, it's kind of like if you went to a wedding and they did all the, the, the giving of the bride stuff and the, the exchanging of the vows and the promises but then just before the pronouncement as husband and wife, you, you kind of take like a year-long break. And then you come back in a year or so to, to finalize the marriage, and you actually do the pronouncement and the reception and the party and all of that. All that to say, there is no legal commitment in our society when a couple gets engaged. But back then when a couple was betrothed, there was a binding legal commitment. It was so official that if you look at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew mentions Mary being betrothed to Joseph, and then in the very next sentence refers to him as her husband, Joseph. It's that binding of a commitment. They're basically husband and wife at that point. And so the only two ways that a betrothal could be broken off was by death or by divorce. Keep that in mind. We're going to get back to that in a bit. Going back to Mary, though. We're just not told much about her at all. We're only told about the fact that she is betrothed to Joseph. And from that, given the culture of that day, we can deduce that she was probably a young teenager at that point. Point number one, Mary's background. But let's put this all together now. You've got this teenage girl, uh, completely insignificant by any social standards back then, The only thing that we know about her is that she is about to become a carpenter's wife, an insignificant girl from an insignificant town located in a region that was largely an afterthought in Israel. Like, you could not draw up a less grand, less spectacular entrance for the Son of God than this, at least until he's born in a manger. But that just seems to be God's MO throughout the scriptures. To send his only begotten son to take on human flesh and to do so using the womb of a nobody from nowhere. It's maybe not how you or I would have drawn it up. Certainly not not how Hollywood would have drawn it up. Once again, we're reminded, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So just by way of practical application here, uh, there is no Christian in this room who is too insignificant, too young, too uneducated, and too lowly to serve the Lord. I'm talking uh, to the teenagers in the room, or maybe the older saints, or maybe the stay-at-home moms, or, or those of you who just for whatever reason, feel like you don't really have a part to play in the kingdom of God 
Well, let me tell you that the same God who uses a nobody from nowhere like Mary in this uniquely spectacular way in redemptive history, well, he continues to use nobodies like me and like you in less uniquely spectacular but still eternally significant ways. He uses nobodies like us to be heralds of his wonderful gospel. He uses nobodies like us to make disciples of all nations. He uses nobodies like us to encourage and edify his own children. He uses nobodies like us to build up his church for his glory. Point number one, consider Mary's background. Well, that brings us to point number two, Mary's favor. Reading from verse 28. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 28. Look at how Mary is called, O favored one. And then verse 30, Mary, you have found favor with God. That word for favor, the Greek word charis, it's a word that's typically translated grace. And so we could translate this, oh, graced one, you have found grace with God. Grace, we sang about it this morning, the unmerited favor of God. And isn't that exactly the sense that we get from this passage? That any good that God would show to Mary is unmerited. That the passage tells us absolutely nothing about her that would in any way set her apart as deserving of grace or favor. You'll remember earlier in the sermon I pointed out how Luke intentionally parallels the birth announcements of John and Jesus. Now noticing those similarities is important because it draws our attention to the differences. It's kind of like those spot the differences uh, coloring sheets. You know what I'm talking about? Like Highlights Magazine, you know, where you got the, the two pictures and they're exactly the same, but there are six differences and you got to find them. Well, what makes those differences stand out is that everything else is exactly the same. And we're going to talk about a lot of those differences next time, right? the ways in which Jesus is clearly portrayed as being superior to John. But there's another major difference I want you to notice right now with regards to the parents. Because you remember how the account about Zechariah and Elizabeth started off in verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Well, what about Mary? Absolutely Nothing. Now, I am not implying that Mary was not herself a faithful and upright person. Uh, we're going to see at the end of this sermon, she was a faith-filled woman. Uh, we're going to see in a few weeks when we study the Magnificat, that she was a young woman who loved the scriptures and loved her God. But is not the lack of commendation for Mary striking especially when juxtaposed with the obvious commendation that was given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that draws our attention further to the charis, the, the grace that she receives. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor and grace. 
Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor and grace, and that she would have the honor of carrying the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb. Verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We're going to talk about that in depth next Sunday. But for now, just consider the unique favor that has been bestowed upon Mary in allowing her to play that role. No woman is ever going to do that again. And so Elizabeth says, look at verse 42, Blessed are you among women. But again, lest we think that Mary did something to earn that honor, lest we think that she was someone to merit that privilege, well, Luke's silence in that regard leaves us with no other option but to give all the glory to God. The emphasis of this text is not on the merits or the worthiness of Mary. It's on the sovereign choice of God. God's grace, or God's charis, never based on the worthiness of the recipient, always due to his free goodness, kindness, mercy, and compassion. And so he says, Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Friends, that's true of the grace that Mary received, and that's true of the grace that we receive. Now, as I've said, this grace that's being referred to in our passage, uh, the grace to Mary that's unique in the sense that it's talking about her role in redemptive history, a role that will not be replicated. But in terms of God's divine favor being freely given to people who have done nothing to merit it, that's exactly what God does for all of his children in the gospel. I think that's why it's so important for us to rightly emphasize sin. I know there's a lot of preaching out there that that kind of tries to downplay sin, that that focuses on the, the good and the positive and the encouraging. But here's the thing. Unless we have a right understanding of our sin of our total depravity, that every single aspect of our being has been infected and stained by both our sinful nature and our sinful choices, unless we have a right understanding of how undeserving we are of God's favor, we're inevitably inevitably going to start thinking that we actually deserve God's grace, that God owes us his favor, that he'd be wrong or unjust to not bestow grace on us, given how holy or righteous or servant-hearted or humble we are. That's why so many of the passages in the scriptures that focus on God's wonderful salvific grace, they're often preceded by descriptions of just how sinful and wicked and wretched we really are. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you read that and you think, yeah, I am pretty awesome. Of course God should wash me and sanctify me and justify me. Hold on, buddy, you got to go back to verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here it is. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Such were some of you, as in you did nothing to deserve or merit this grace, but God freely bestowed it upon you. Ephesians chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But again, before you start feeling too good about yourself, you need to go back to verses 1 through 3. You know, those verses that describe you as being dead in your trespasses and sins, children of wrath following the devil, basically completely undeserving of that grace by which you have been saved. So let me just speak to those of you in this room who are not Christians. We've said it generally, that all of us are sinners. But now let's get really specific. You are a sinner. And because you are a sinner, you deserve the wrath of God. You deserve an eternity in hell. But again, I remind you, God is gracious. God is full of grace towards undeserving sinners like me and like you. I mean, think about it. God has already been very gracious to you even this morning in bringing you to this place that you might hear this gospel message, right? That in itself is a grace. To hear this gospel message that Christ died for sinners like you and that if you would repent and believe, put your trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, you too can be saved. That alone is the grace of God that you might hear that salvation message. And so I say to you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to cry out and call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. Oh, favored one, you have found favor with God. Oh, graced one, you have found grace with God. All of God's grace, whether it's to Mary allowing her to become the mother of Jesus, or it's to us giving us the right to become children of God. It's all of his free and sovereign choice. Point number two, Mary's favor. Before we move on, though, let me speak briefly about a false teaching that's kind of embedded in this passage, that kind of comes out of this passage. Uh, The Catholic Church uh, teaches a lot of uh, unbiblical things about Mary, uh, her perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, uh, her assumption, uh, and all of those are unbiblical, all of those are heretical. Uh, But with regards to our passage, remember verse 28. Remember where Gabriel says to Mary, greetings, O favored one. Well, the Catholic Church has taken the phrase translated as O favored one, O graced one, and has taken it to mean full of grace. Hence the all too familiar hail Mary, full of grace, right? That comes from this verse. And it's used to support this idea that Mary herself is a fountain or a dispenser of grace. That she is the one to whom the faithful believer should look for grace. That she is the the mediatrix of all grace. Unless you think I'm just setting up a straw man argument here, let me read from the papal decree of Pope Pius IX. This is official Catholic dogma. This is spoken ex cathedra. Begin quote. 
Let all the children of the Catholic Church continue to venerate, invoke, and pray to the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, conceived without original sin. Let them fly with utter confidence to this most sweet Mother of mercy and grace in all dangers, difficulties, needs, doubts, and fears. Under her guidance, under her patronage, under her kindness and protection, nothing is to be feared, nothing is hopeless. And since she has been appointed by God to be the queen of heaven and earth and is exalted above all the choirs of angels and saints and even stands at the right hand of her only begotten son, Jesus Christ our Lord, she presents our petitions in a most efficacious manner. End quote. That is blasphemous. That takes the roles and functions of Christ and gives them to another. That's unbiblical. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's also ridiculous. Mary hasn't heard a single prayer since she died. She's too busy worshiping her Savior in eternity. But going back to our passage, remember what we said earlier about how this passage so clearly portrays Mary as the recipient of grace. Well, to say that she herself is full of grace, that she can bestow and give grace, well, that misses the point of our passage. The emphasis of this text is not at all on Mary's worthiness. It's all on God as the free giver of grace. A side note here, something for you to think about this afternoon. If Mary is due all of this veneration, Don't you think her name would have come up a little bit more in the New Testament? Not once in the epistles, in any of the letters of the New Testament, does the name Mary appear. And so you're telling me that there is one to whom God's children should fly with utter confidence, but like Paul and John and James, they're like, we're not going to tell the people about that. We're going to hold out on them about that. It's ridiculous. But remember, the reason I'm spending time on this is because this is not just a random, obscure, false teaching from some fringe group. Like, well, that's wacky. No, friends, we live in a city in which something like one-third of the population at least professes to be Catholic, identifies as Catholic. And so this is something that the people whom we work with and live with and go to school with believe, or at least would say they believe. And therefore, it is something that we as Bible-believing Christians have to know where we stand. Point number two, Mary's favor. Mary is a recipient of God's free favor and grace. So we've got Mary's background, and we've got Mary's favor. Point number three, Mary's submission. Look again at verses 34 to 38. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, This Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So let's keep our focus on Mary by uh, saving verse 35 about the incarnation for next week. What do the other verses tell us about point number three, 
Mary's submission. Let's start with a question in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? Look at your footnote in the ESV. It's literally, since I do not know a man. Two things that we should note about that question. First, the question, the very fact that Mary would ask that question tells us that she understands Gabriel's message about having a son to mean that she's going to conceive and bear a son now as opposed to many years from now in the future. Because if her understanding was that she was going to give birth many years from now, she would naturally deduce that after she finalized her marriage to Joseph, they would have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And we'll talk about what Gabriel says about Jesus next week, but for now, notice that one of the promises is that Jesus would rule on the throne of his father David. That's in verse 32. But now look at how Joseph is described in verse 27 as being of the house of David. And so again, if she understood Gabriel's message to refer to future events, well, the natural inference would be that the child would be hers and Joseph's. But clearly, given the question, how will this be since I am a virgin, she understands Gabriel to be talking about a conception that would happen immediately, now. How will this be? Second, remember what we said earlier, Highlights Magazine, spot the differences. And when you have a lot of similarities, the differences stand out. Both Gabriel and Mary ask a question, similarity. But only Gabriel is disciplined with muteness. Difference. What's going on here? Well, first, we can just look at what the text very plainly says. Uh, Verse 20, Gabriel speaking to Zechariah, you did not believe my words. And so Zechariah is plainly called out for his unbelief. But Mary, Mary is commended for her belief. Go ahead to verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so the text very plainly tells us that the main difference here is that Gabriel, sorry, Zechariah did not believe, but Mary did believe. But now think about the question itself. And Gabriel asks, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Basically, give me a sign so that I will know that what you're saying is true. But Mary's question is couched in faith. She really does believe that God is going to bring about exactly what he said he would. But her question is more about the process. How? How am I going to conceive? Is there something I have to do? She doesn't wonder if God is going to keep his promises. She wonders how God will do what she promised. And in Mary's defense, whereas Zechariah and Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, certainly miraculous, But it definitely had precedence in the Old Testament, most notably with Abraham and Sarah. Uh, But this virginal conception in Mary, completely unprecedented. Nothing like it had ever happened before and nothing like it has happened since. And so she asks, how will this be? So Gabriel gives her an explanation. And again, we're going to talk about those verses next time. But for now, I just want you to notice here how veiled the language that Gabriel uses is. 
Like he's not giving like a two-semester course on the the hypostatic union and then the, the nature of the Trinity or anything like that. He just says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Basically, he tells her what she needs to know and really doesn't delve any deeper than that. What he does do is give her a sign and a statement. A sign. You remember Elizabeth, she who was called barren. Well, Elizabeth is in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And then a statement, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now that's a statement that would have immediately recalled the story of Abraham and Sarah. You know that story where God appears to Abraham, tells him, about this time next year, your wife Sarah is going to bear you a son, referring to Isaac, through whom the promises would be passed. Sarah overhears this, and she laughs. After all, I am 90 years old. What does God say? Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The implied answer is no. And you see how Gabriel rephrases that question as a statement. Nothing will be impossible with God. And so both the sign and the statement are meant to bolster Mary's faith in God's promises by pointing to his past faithfulness. Mary, look at Elizabeth. Remember Sarah. Like you can trust God when he makes a promise like this. You don't know all the details. So much remains shrouded in mystery. You're going to give birth to a human being who is yet God of God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Uh, the mystery of mysteries, the hypostatic union, but you can trust God, for nothing is impossible with Him. And what is her response? Her faith filled response of simply trusting God in His Word? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Servant there is it's the feminine uh, version of the, the well-known New Testament term, doulos, right, meaning slave. She simply says, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Point number three, Mary's submission. But this is no ordinary submission. I, I think this gets lost on us sometimes because of our familiarity with this text. This would have been an incredibly costly submission for Mary. I mean, think about it. She's just a small town girl in first century Israel. Like her life's goals and dreams and aspirations were probably just to get married, have a family, and just be faithful in those ways. If she got pregnant, before she was married, that would surely ruin her life. All of her dreams, all of her goals, all of her aspirations. How in the world is she going to explain to Joseph that she was pregnant? Say, oh, just tell him that an angel appeared and he were chosen to bear the Son of God through this virginal conception. Oh, why don't you just say so? No, that's not going to work. Nobody would have believed her. Surely, she would have been accused of adultery. 
And while it doesn't seem like they practice the death penalty for adultery, surely Joseph would have filed for divorce. And surely she would carry that scarlet letter, Hester Prynne, for the rest of her life. Any chance of, of just a life, uh, just a respectable life as a member of society were thrown out the window. And even as all of that must have been swirling around in her head, my life as I know it might be over. Yet she trusted the one making the promises. She trusted the one whose word never fails. She trusted the God with whom nothing is impossible. I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Reminds us of Job. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or maybe Esther. If I perish, I perish. Or her son. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Point number three, Mary's submission. Uh, Perhaps we as Protestants, we can respond to the uh, Catholic Church's extremely unbiblical and idolatrous veneration of Mary, and we can go so far the other way that we neglect to see her as, as a wonderful example of submitting our lives to God's will. Or just seeing God's plan as infinitely better and wiser than anything that we could concoct. Or seeing God's word as worthy of all of our trust in spite of the circumstances. But in a story that just shines so brightly with God's grace, it's fitting that even in her costly obedience and submission, Mary is once again going to be a recipient of God's grace. This is just something that really struck me in my study this week. God is so gracious. God is so kind to Mary, his servant. But we we can't see that just by reading the Gospel of Luke. This is where we've got to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Remember what we said earlier about how these two Gospels complement each other and and together they give us a, a fuller picture of the life of Christ Well, look at Matthew's account of how God sent an angel to Joseph. Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Well, that's Luke chapter 1. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Do you see 
God's grace to Mary in that. Mary's gonna, she was going to obey anyway. She wasn't like, all right, God, that's fine. I will obey you, uh, but, but you've got to send an angel to Joseph too. Like, you've got to explain this thing to him. She doesn't do that. But our God is a gracious God. He is compassionate towards his children. Here he is abundantly merciful to his daughter Mary in sending the angel to Joseph. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see God's grace. How am I going to tell Joseph? She doesn't have to. Because God tells him. How am I going to raise this child by myself as a divorcee? Well, she doesn't have to. Because God will give her Joseph as a husband. How can I possibly do any of this? Well, she can. By the grace of God. Because friends, here she is dealing with the God of all grace. The God of infinite, matchless, marvelous grace. The one who tells his children, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's exactly what he does for Mary. And that's exactly what he does for each and every one of his children. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of all grace. Father, we praise you for you bestow your grace on undeserving wretched sinners like us, like Mary, like Joseph, like all of your children. Father, we pray that you would give us, your people, just a fresh understanding of how marvelous your grace is. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know your grace, that today would be for them the day of salvation, day on which, by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they truly understand your grace for the first time. Father, we praise you, and we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.